Welcome back to Books of Bedtime. I'm Tyler, and today we're going to be continuing to read The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. All right. 27. His Eyes Unveiled I left the bar, smiling, unmindful of the fact that I was still dockside and in danger. I felt buoyant, knowing I would have the chance to hear another story soon. It had been a long time since I had looked forward to anything. I went back to my street corner and proceeded to waste three hours begging, not gaining so much as a thin shim for my efforts. Even this failed to dampen my spirits. Tomorrow was morning, but the day after there would be stories. But as I sat there, I felt a vague unease creep over me. A feeling that I was forgetting something impinged on my too rare happiness. I tried to ignore it, but it stayed with me all day and into the next, like a mosquito I couldn't see, let alone swat. By the end of the day, I was certain I had forgotten something. Something about the story Scarpy had told. It's easy for you to see, no doubt, hearing the story like this, conveniently arranged and narrated. Keep in mind that I had been living like an animal in Tarbine for nearly three years. Pieces of my mind were still asleep, and my painful memories had been gathering dust behind the door of forgetfulness. I had grown used to avoiding them the same way a cripple keeps weight off an injured leg. Luck smiled on me the next day, and I managed to steal a bundle of rags off the back of a wagon and sell them to a ragman for four iron pennies. Too hungry to worry about tomorrow, I bought a thick slice of cheese and a warm sausage, then a whole loaf of fresh bread and a warm apple tart. Finally, on a whim, I went ba back to the door of the nearby inn and spent my final penny on a mug of strong beer. I sat on the steps of a bakery, across the street from the inn, and watched people coming and going as I enjoyed my best meal in months. Soon twilight faded into darkness, and my head began to spin pleasantly from the beer. But as the food settled in my belly, the nagging sensation returned, stronger than before. I frowned, irritated that something would spoil an otherwise perfect day. Night deepened until the inn across the street stood in a pool of light. A few women hovered near the doorway to the inn. They murmured in low voices and gave knowing looks to the men who walked past. I drank off the last of the beer and was about to cross the street and return the mug when I saw a flicker of torchlight approaching. Looking down the street, I saw the distinctive gray of a Talon priest and decided to wait until he had passed. Drunk on morning and just recently a thief, I guessed the less contact I had with the clergy, the better, do the better off I'd be. He was hooded, and the torch he carried was between us, so I couldn't see his face. He approached the group of nearby women and there was a low murmur of discussion. I heard the distinctive chink of coins, and sunk further into the shadow of the doorway. The Talon priest, sorry, the Talon turned and headed back the way he had come. I remained still, not wanting to draw his attention, not wanting to have to run for safety while my head was spinning. This time, however, the torch was not between us. When he turned to look in my direction, I could see nothing of his face. Only darkness under the cowl of his hood, only shadow. He continued on his way, unaware of my presence or uncaring, but I stayed where I was, unable to move. 
The image of the hooded man, his face hidden in shadow, had thrown open a door in my mind and memories were spilling out. I was remembering a man with empty eyes, and a smile from a nightmare, remembering the blood on his sword. Cinder, his voice like a chill wind. Is this your parent's fire? Not him, the man behind him, the quiet one who had sat beside the fire, the man whose face was hidden in shadow. Heliax. This had been the half-remembered thing hovering on the edge of my awareness, since I had heard Scarpy's story. I ran to the rooftops and wrapped myself in my rag blanket. Pieces of story and memory slowly fit together. I began to admit impossible truths to myself. The Chandrian were real. Haliax was real. If the story Scarpy had told was true, then Lanray and Haliax were the same person. The Chandrian had killed my parents. My whole troop. Why? Other memories bubbled to the surface of my mind. I saw the man with black eyes, Cinder, kneeling in front of me, his face expressionless, his voice sharp and cold. Someone's parents, he had said, have been singing entirely the wrong sort of songs. They had killed my parents for gathering stories about them. They had killed my whole troop over a song. I sat awake all night with little more than these thoughts running through my head. Slowly I came to realize them as the truth. What did I do then? Did I swear I would find them, kill them all for what they had done? Perhaps, but even if I did, I knew in my heart it was impossible. Tarbine had taught me hard practicality. Kill the Chandrian? Kill Lanray? How could I even begin? I would have more luck trying to steal the moon. At least I know where... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> at least I knew where to look for the moon at night. But there was one thing I could do. Tomorrow I would ask Scarpy for the real truth behind his stories. It wasn't much, but it was all I had. Revenge might be beyond me, at least for now, but I still had a hope of knowing the truth. I held tight to that hope through the dark hours of night until the sun rose and I fell asleep. Chapter 28. Telu's Watchful Eye Oh, okay, before I begin this one, I... Oh, man. Things like that, bringing up a bunch of painful memories, um, can be hard, but... Having grown and matured, and gained some practicality, he was ready to remember, and able to bear it without the same sort of... staggering weight, or... Um, crippling wound from the memory. Um, a 12-year-old might think themselves fairly adult, but comparing a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, the 15-year-old is far more grown than the, mentally speaking, than the 12-year-old. Um, physically, too, and that, that does have something to do with it. Our bodies have more to do with our identities than we like to admit sometimes. Anyway, well, okay, last thing I'll say. Have you noticed that short people tend to share a 
few personality traits and tall people as well. I don't mean just like barely shorter than average or barely taller. I mean those who are very short or those who are very tall. They, There's a certain way that you expect someone who's very short to act. And uh, that's something gained from the influence their body has had on their life. Um, and their development. Part of it is genetic. Part of it's biological, and part of it is how they were treated socially. But there's something innate about your physical form that if you are weak, you are wary of the strong and those who could do you harm. If you are strong, you tend to be more confident in your physical presence and um, less worried about people hurting you. So... Um, th things like that have a, a way of shaping how your mind functions and how you deal with threats or, or trauma. Anyway, okay. Chapter 28. Telu's Watchful Eye. The next day I came blearily awake to the sound of the hour being struck. I counted four bells, but didn't know how many I might have slept through. I blinked the sleep from my eyes and tried to gauge the time from the position of the sun. About sixth bell. Scarpy would be starting his story now. I ran through the streets, my bare feet slapped on the rough cobbles, splashing through puddles and taking shortcuts through alleyways. Everything became a blur around me as I pulled in great lungfuls of the damp, stagnant city air. I almost burst into the half-mast at a dead run and settled in against the back wall by the door. I dimly realized that there were more people in the inn than usual this early in the evening. Then Scarpy's story pulled me in, and I could do nothing but listen to his deep rolling voice and watch his sparkling eyes. Solitos one eye stood forward and said, Lord, if I do this thing, will I be given the power to avenge the loss of the Shining City? Can I confound the plots of Lanre and his Chandrian who killed the innocent and burned my beloved Mir Terenil? Aleph said, No, all personal things must be set aside, and you must punish or reward only what you yourself witness from this day forth. Selatos bowed his head. I am sorry, but my heart says to me I must try to stop these things before they are done, not wait and punish later. Some of the Ruach murmured agreement with Selatos, and went to stand with him, for they remembered Mir Terenil, and were filled with rage and hurt at Lanre's betrayal. Selatos went to Elef, and knelt before him. I must refuse, because I cannot forget, but I will oppose him with these faithful Ruach before me. I see their hearts are pure. We will be called the Amir. I should double-check pronunciation. I know, I know, it's your favorite. I could check the pronunciation guide and stop the story and you're left waiting. Okay. Amir, yeah, okay. <clears throat> we will be called the Amir in memory of the ruined city. We will confound Lanre and any who follow him. None, sorry, nothing will prevent us from attaining the greater good. Most of the Ruach hung back from Selutos too. 
they were afraid, and they did not wish to become involved in great matters. But Telu stood forward, saying, I hold justice foremost in my heart. I will leave this world behind that I might better serve it, serving you. He knelt before Aleph, his head bowed, his hands open at his sides. Others came forward, Tal Kirel, who had been burned but left living in the ash of Mir Terreniel, Dea, who had lost two husbands. Okay, first of all, I gotta stop and say, Telu? Is he saying that Telu was a compatriot to Selitos? But now he's talking about leaving the world behind. Hmm. Oh, we missed some crucial details at the beginning of Scarpy's story. Okay, well. Dea, who had lost two husbands to the fighting, and whose face and mouth and heart were hard and cold as stone, Enlas, who would not carry a sword or eat the flesh of animals, and who no man had ever known to speak hard words, Fergesa. Yeah, maybe... Jaysa? Gaysa? Anyway, who had a, hung, a hundred suitors in Belen before the walls fell, the first woman to know the unasked for touch of man. Oh, okay. Yikes. Poor, poor woman. Okay. Lesselti, who laughed easily and often, even when there was woe thick about him. Imet, hardly more than a boy who never sang and killed swiftly without tears. Ordal, the youngest of them all, who had never seen a thing die, stood bravely before Aleph, her golden hair bright with ribbon, and beside her came Andan, whose face was a mask with burning eyes, whose name meant anger. They came to Aleph, and he touched them, he touched their hands and eyes and hearts, the last time he touched them there was pain, and wings tore from their backs that they might go where they wished. Wings of fire and shadow, wings of iron and glass, wings of stone and blood. Then Aleph spoke their long names, and they were wreathed in a white fire. The fire danced along their wings, and they became swift. The fire flickered in their eyes, and they saw into the deepest hearts of men. The fire filled their mouths, and they sang songs of power. Then the fire settled on their foreheads like silver stars, and they became at once righteous and wise and terrible to behold. Then the fire consumed them, and they were gone forever from mortal sight. None but the most powerful can see them, and only then with great difficulty and at great peril they mete out justice to the world and Telu is the greatest of them all. So apparently, Telu is one of the Amir, one who the uh, Chendrian were afraid of. This would tend to suggest to me, from inference, that um, Telu is nothing more than a powerful man, and not... Um, not a god. Okay. But might as well be a god or an angel from how powerful the Amir are that the Chandrian are afraid of them. Okay. I have heard enough, 
The speaker wasn't loud, but he may as well have shouted. When Scarpy told the story, any interruption was like chewing a grain of sand in a mouthful of bread. Ugh. From the back of the room, two men in dark cloaks came, forward, came toward the bar, one tall and proud, one short and hooded. As they walked, I saw a flash of gray robe beneath their cloaks, tail-in priests. Worse, I saw two other men with armor under their cloaks. I hadn't seen it while they were sitting, but now that they were moving it was painfully obvious they were church strongmen. Their faces were grim, and the lines of their cloaks spoke of swords to me. Ah, oh, man, this is, this is the problem with having a church state. Okay. Let's see. Worse? Okay, no, let's see. Uh, let's see. I wasn't the only one who saw. The children were trickling out the door. The smarter ones tried to appear casual, but some broke into a run before they got outside. Again, just common sense, three children stayed. There was a sealedish boy with lace on his shirt, a little girl with bare feet, and myself. I believe we have all heard enough, the taller of the two priests said with quiet severity. He was lean with sunken eyes that smoldered like half-hidden coals. A carefully trimmed beard the color of soot sharpened the edges of his knife-blade face. He handed his cloak to the shorter hooded priest. Underneath he wore the pale gray robe of the Talons. Around his neck was a set of silver scales. My heart sunk deep into the pit of my stomach. Not just a priest, but a justice. I saw the other two children slip out the door. The justice spoke. Under Telu's watchful eye, I charge you with heresy. Witnessed, said the second priest from within his hood. The justice motioned to the mercenaries. Bind him. This, is the, mer this the mercenaries did with rough efficiency. Scarpy endured the whole thing placidly without saying a word. The justice watched his bodyguard begin to tie Scarpy's wrists, then turned his body slightly away, as if dismissing the storyteller from his mind. He took a long look around the room, his inspection finally ending with the bald aproned man behind the bar. "'Telu's blessing be upon you,' the owner of the half-mast stammered explosively. "'It is,' the justice said simply. He took another long look around the room. Finally, he turned his head to the second priest, who stood back from the bar. "'Anthony, would a fine place such as this be harboring heretics?' "'Anything is possible, Justice.' "'Ah,' the Justice said softly, and looked around the room. "'Once again, ending with an inspection of the man behind the bar. "'Can I offer your honors a drink, if and it please you?' "'The owner offered quickly. There was only silence. "'I mean, a drink for you and your brothers. "'A fine barrel of fallow white, to show my thanks.' I let him stay because his stories were interesting at first. He swallowed hard and hurried on, but then he started to say wicked things. I was afraid to throw him out because he is obviously mad, and everyone knows God's displeasure falls heavily on those who raise their hands to madmen. His voice broke, leaving the room suddenly quiet. He swallowed, and I could hear the dry click his throat made from where I stood by the door. A generous offer the justice said finally. Very generous. 
echoed the shorter priest. However, strong drink sometimes tempts men to wicked actions. Wicked, whispered the priest, and some of our brothers have taken vows against the temptations of the flesh. I must refuse. I managed to catch Scarpy's eyes, and he gave me a little half-smile. My stomach churned. The old storyteller didn't seem to have any idea what sort of trouble he was in, but at the same time, deep inside me, something selfish was saying, If you'd come earlier and found out what you needed to know, it wouldn't be so bad now, would it? Uh, yeah. The barman broke the silence. Could you take the bri- pi uh, Goodness, let me start over. The barman broke the silence. Could you take the price of the barrel, then, sirs, if not the barrel itself? The justice paused, as if thinking. For the sake of the children, the bald man pleaded. I know you will use the money for them. The justice pursed his lips. Very well, he said after a moment. For the sake of the children. The shorter priest's voice had an unpleasant edge. The children. The owner managed a weak smile. Scarpy rolled his eyes at me and winked. You would think, Scarpy's voice rolled out like think, thick honey, fine churchmen as yourselves could find better things to do than arresting storytellers and extorting money from honest men. The clinking of the barman's coins trailed off, and the room seemed to hold its breath. With a studied casualness, the justice turned his back toward Scarpy, and spoke over one shoulder toward the shorter priest. Anthony, we seem to have found a courteous heretic. How strange and wonderful. We should sell him to a rude troop. In a way, he resembles a talking dog. Scarpy spoke to the man's back. It's not as if... <coughs> Scarpy spoke to the man's back. It's not as if I expect you to bound off looking for Haliax and the Seven yourself. Small deeds for small men, I always say. I imagine the trouble is in finding the job small enough for men such as yourselves. But you are resourceful. You could pick trash or check brothel beds for lice when you are visiting. Turning, the justice snatched the clay cup off the bar and dashed it against Scarpy's head, shattering it. Do not speak in my presence, he crackled. You know nothing. Scarpy shook his head a little, as if to clear it. A trickle of red lined its way down his driftwood face. Down into the sea. Sorry, down into one of his seafoam eyebrows. I suppose that... I suppose that could be true. Telu always said, do not speak his name, the justice screamed, his face a livid red. Your mouth dirties it. It is a blasphemy upon your tongue. Oh, come now, airless, Scarpy chided as though talking to a small child. Telu hates you even more than the rest of the world does, which is quite a bit. The room became unnaturally still. The justice's face grew pale. God have mercy on you he said in a cold, trembling voice. Scarpy looked at the justice mutely for a moment. Then he started to laugh, great, booming, helpless laughter from the bottom of his soul. The eyes of the justice flicked to one of the men who had tied the storyteller. With no preamble, the grim-faced man struck Scarpy with a tight fist, once in the kidney, once in the back of the neck, 
Scarpy crumpled to the ground. The room was silent. The sound of his body hitting the wood planking of the floor seemed to fade before the echoes of his laughter did. At a gesture from the justice, one of the guards picked the old man up by the scruff of his neck. He dangled like a rag doll, his feet trailing on the ground. But Scarpy was not unconscious, merely stunned. The storyteller's eyes rolled around to focus on the justice. Mercy on my soul. He gave a weak croak that might have been a chuckle on a better day. You don't know how funny that sounds coming from you. Scarpy seemed to address the air in front of him. You should run, Kvoth. There's nothing to be gained by meddling with these sort of men. Head to the rooftops. Stay, stay where they won't see you for a while. I have friends in the church who can help me, but there's nothing you can do here. Go. Since he wasn't looking at me when he spoke, there was a moment of confusion. The justice gestured again, and one of the guards struck Scarpy a blow to the back of the head. His eyes rolled back, and his head lolled forward. I slipped out the door onto the street. I took Scarpy's advice and was on a rooftop, running before they left the bar. Oh, that's interesting. Did he ever introduce himself to Scarpy? Let me see. Let's see here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, my father. This. Do you know many stories? Let me see here. Do, 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 do. don't think he ever told Scarpy his name. Interesting that Scarpy knew it. wonder if he has some special power that uh, allows him to know the truth of the world. That would be... that would be interesting. 29. The Doors of My Mind Up onto the rooftops and back to my secret place, I wrapped myself in my blanket and cried. I cried as if something inside me had broken and everything was rushing out. When I had worn myself out with sobbing, it was deep into the night. Okay, interesting side note about crying. Um, it is one of two ways um, that I know of uh, that cortisol leaves the body, uh, the stress hormone, uh, the other being sweat. So, um, crying can actually be a healing thing, can relieve stress on the body after a good long cry. Um, so remember that, and uh, don't feel shame at crying. It's your body relieving itself of some uh, undue stress that you don't need anymore. Most of the time. Well, some of the time. Anyway. Um, and... You know, both truly has things to grieve, so let yourself grieve if you have something to grieve for. Okay, uh, I lay there looking at the sky, weary but unable to sleep. I thought of my parents and of the troop, and was surprised to find the memories less bitter than before. For the first time in years, I used one of the tricks Ben had taught me for calming and sharpening the mind. It was harder than I remembered, but I did it. 
If you have ever slept the whole night without moving, then awoke in the morning, your body stiff with inaction. Wait. If you have ever slept the whole night without moving, then awoke in the morning, your body stiff with inaction. If you can remember how that first terrific stretch feels pleasant and painful, then you may understand how my mind felt after all these years stretching awake on the rooftops of Tarbine. I spent the rest of that night opening the doors of my mind. Inside I found things long forgotten. My mother fitting words together for a song, diction for the stage, three recipes for tea to calm nerves and promote sleep, finger scales for the lute. My music. Had it really been years since I held a lute? I spent a long time thinking about the Chandrian, about what they had done to my troop, what they had taken from me. I remembered blood and the smell of burning hair and felt a deep, sullen anger burning in my chest. I will admit I thought dark, vengeful thoughts that night, but my years in Tarbine had instilled an iron-hard practicality. I knew revenge was nothing more than a childish fantasy. I was fifteen. What could I possibly do? I did know one thing. It had come to me as I lay remembering. It was something Haliax had said to Cinder. Who keeps you safe from the Amir, the singers, the seethe, from all that would harm you in the world? The Chandrian had enemies. If I could find them, they would help me. I had no idea who the singers or the seeth were, but everyone knew that the Amer were church knights, the strong right hand of the Aeturan Empire. Unfortunately, everyone also knew that there had been no Amir in three hundred years. They had been they had been disbanded when the Aeturan Empire collapsed. But Haliax had spoken of them as if they still existed, and Scarpy's story implied that the Amir had begun with Selitos, not with the Aeturan Empire, as I had always been taught. There was obviously more to the story, more that I needed to know. The more I thought on it, the more questions arose. The Chandrian obviously didn't kill everyone who gathered stories or sang songs about them. Everyone knew a story or two about them, and every child at one point had sung the silly rhyme about their signs. What made my parents' song so different? I had questions. There was only one place for me to go, of course. I looked over my meager possessions. I had a rag blanket and a burlap sack with some straw that I used for a pillow. I had a pint bottle with a cork in it, half full of clean water, a piece of canvas sailcloth that I weighted down with bricks and used as a windbreak on cold nights, a crude pair of salt dice, and a single tatty shoe that was too small for me, but that I hoped to trade for something else and twenty-seven iron pennies in common coin. My rainy day money. A few days ago it had seemed like a vast treasure trove, but now I knew it would never be enough. As the sun was rising, I removed rhetoric and logic from its hiding place under a rafter. I unwrapped the scrap of treated canvas I used to protect it, and was relieved to find it dry and well. I felt the smooth leather in my hands. I held it to my face and smelled the back of Ben's wagon, 
spice, and yeast, with the bitter tang of acids and chemical salts mingled in. It was the last tangible piece of my past. I opened it to the first page and read the inscription Ben had made more than three years ago. Gvoth, defend yourself well at the university. Make me proud. Remember your father's song. Be wary of folly. Your friend, Abenthe. I nodded to myself and turned the page. Uh, nice short one. Okay. <clears throat> 30. The Broken Binding. The sign over the doorpost read, The Broken Binding. I took it to be an auspicious sign and walked in. A man sat behind a desk. I assumed he was the owner. He was tall and reedy with thinning hair. He looked up from a ledger, his expression vaguely irritated. Deciding to keep niceties to a minimum, I walked to his desk and handed him the book. How much would you give me for this? He leafed through it professionally, feeling the paper between his fingers, checking the binding. He shrugged. A couple of jots. It's worth more than that, I said indignantly. It's worth what you can get for it, he said matter-of-factly. I'll give you one and a half. Two talents, and I have the option to buy it back for a month. He gave a short barking laugh. This is not a pawn shop. He slid the book across the desk toward me with one hand as he picked up his pen with the other. Twenty days? He hesitated, then gave the book another cursory once-over and brought out his purse. He pulled out two heavy silver talents. It was more money than I'd seen in one place for a long, long time. He slid them across the desk. I restrained the desire to snatch them up immediately and said, I'll need a receipt. This time he gave me such a long, hard look that I began to get a little nervous. It was only then I realized how I must look, covered in a year's worth of alley dirt, trying to get a receipt for a book I'd obviously stolen. Eventually he gave another bland shrug and scratched out a note on one slip of paper. At the bottom he drew a line and made a motion with his pen. Sign here. It looked. I looked at the paper. It read, I, by signing below, hereby attest to the fact that I can neither read nor write. He looked. I looked up at the owner. He held a straight face. I dipped the pen and carefully wrote the letters D.D. as if they were my initials. He fanned the ink dry and slid my receipt across the desk toward me. What does D stand for? He said with the barest hint of a smile. Defeasance, he sa I said. It means to render something null and void, usually a contract. The second is for decrepitate, which is the act of throwing someone in a fire. He gave me a blank look. Decrepitation is the punishment for forgery in Junpui. I think false receipts fall in that category. I made no move to touch the money or the receipt. There was a tense silence. This isn't Junpui, he said, his face carefully composed. True enough, I admitted. You have a keen sense of defalcation. Perhaps I should add a third D. He gave another sharp, barking laugh and smiled. You've convinced me, young master. He pulled out a fresh slip of paper and set it in front of me. You write me a receipt, and I will sign it. 
I took up the pen and wrote, I, the undersigned, do agree to return the copy of the book Rhetoric and Logic, with the inscription to Kvoth, to the bearer of this note, in exchange for two silver pennies, provided the present, provided he present this receipt before the date I looked up. What day is it? Orden, the 38th. I had fallen out of habit of keeping track of the date. On the streets, one day is largely the same as the next, save that people are a little more drunk on Hepton and a little more generous on morning. But if it was the 35th, then I only had five days to get to the university. I knew from Ben that emissions only lasted until sendling. If I missed them, I would have to wait two months for the next term to start. I filled in the date on the receipt and drew a line for the bookseller to sign. He looked a little bemused as I slid the paper toward him. What's more, he didn't notice that the receipt read pennies instead of talents. Talents were worth significantly more. This meant he had just agreed to give me back the book for less money than he had bought it for. My satisfaction dampened itself when it occurred, when it occurred to me how foolish all of this was. Pennies or talents, I wouldn't have enough money to buy the book back in two span. Wait a minute, two span. Okay, hang on. Twenty days. Okay. So a span is ten days. Okay. Uh, if everything went well, I wouldn't even be in Tarbine tomorrow. Despite its useful uselessness, the receipt helped ease the sting of parting with the last thing I owned from my childhood. I blew on the paper, folded it carefully into a pocket, and collected my two silver talents. I was surprised when the man held out his hand to me. He smiled in an apologetic way. Sorry about the note, but you didn't look like you'd be coming back. He gave a little shrug. Here. He pressed a copper jot into my hand. I decided that he was not an altogether bad fellow. I smiled back at him, and for a second I almost felt guilty about how I'd written the receipt. I also felt guilty about the three pens I'd stolen, but only for a second, and since there was no convenient way to give them back, I stole an <laughs> I stole a bottle of ink before I left. Wow, so so good of you, Kvothe. Good job. <sighs> okay. Let's see. Sure, we'll read one more chapter. And that'll be it for tonight. 31. The Nature of Nobility The two talents had a reassuring weight to them that had nothing to do with how heavy they were. Anyone who has been without money for a long time will know what I'm talking about. My first investment was a good leather purse. I wore it underneath my clothes, tight against my skin. Next was a real breakfast, a plate full of hot eggs and a slice of ham, bread that was fresh and soft, plenty of honey and butter on the side, and a glass of milk not two days from the cow. It cost me five iron pennies. It may be the best meal I ever ate. Ah, yes. Um, so, people often... Okay, this, this is not the book, but uh, people often say that, like, camp food is really good, or... or um, they'll reminisce on meals they ate after being very hungry for a while. And uh, one of it, it brings to mind that one of the most important ingredients in a meal is hunger. If you are hungry, then the meal will taste better. That's just the fact of it. So, camp food isn't really that much better, and sometimes it's even worse than food made at home. But... Because you've just exerted yourself at a campsite, often doing um, hard acts to get the campsite set up and uh, prepare wood for a fire and um, 
any number of other things, especially uh, going on a hike, um, expending a lot of energy, coming back and making some food outdoors. Yeah, yeah, that's going to taste better than most food because you've just done more work than you're used to doing. So you're hungrier than usual. Your body needs the food more than, than normal. So while this may not be actually the best meal he ever ate, it was the meal that did him the most good. Okay, let's see. Uh, it felt strange sitting at a table, eating with a knife and fork. It felt strange being around people. It felt strange having a person bring me food. As I mopped up the remnants of my breakfast with an end of bread, I realized that I had a problem. Even in this slightly grubby inn, Waterside, I was attracting attention. My shirt was nothing more than an old burlap sack with holes for my arms and head. My pants were made out of canvas and too big by several degrees. They reeked of smoke, grease, and stagnant alley water. I'd been holding them up with a length of rope I had dug out of some trash. I was filthy, barefoot, and I stank. Should I buy clothes or try to find a bath? If I bathed first, I would have to wear my old clothes afterward. However, if I tried to buy clothes looking the way I did now, I might not even be let into the store, and I doubted that anyone would want to measure me for a, for a fit. The innkeep came to take my plate. I decided on a bath first, mainly because I was sick to death of smelling like a rat that had been dead for a span of days. I smiled up at him. Where can I find a bath near here? Here, if you have a couple of pennies, he looked me over. Or I'll work you an hour instead, a good hard hour. The hearth could use scrubbing. I'll need a lot of water and soap. Two hours, then. I've got dishes, too. Hearth first, then bath, then dishes. Fair? An hour or so later, my shoulders ached and the hearth was clean. He showed me back to a, a room with a large wooden tub and a grate on the floor. There were pegs allowing... Sorry, there were pegs along the wall for clothes, and a sheet of tin nailed to the wall served as a crude mirror. He brought me a brush, a bucket of steaming water, and a cake of lye soap. I scrubbed until I was sore and pink. The innkeeper brought a second bucket of hot water, then a third. I gave a silent prayer of thanks that I didn't seem to be lousy. Or lousy. Uh, so, um, a note on that word. Um, we think of things, ah, man, that's lousy, right? Uh, it's just something being generally bad, but it literally means infected with lice. Um, or, or having lice on it. Um, so, anyway. Um, I didn't seem to be lousy. Uh, I had probably seen, I had probably been too filthy for any self-respecting louse to take up residence. As I rinsed myself for the last time, I looked at my discarded clothes. Cleaner than I'd been in years, I didn't want to touch them, let alone wear them. If I tried to wash them, they'd simply fall apart. I dried myself off and used the rough brush to pull through the snarls in my hair. It was longer than it had seemed when it was dirty. I wiped the fog from the makeshift mirror and was surprised. I looked old. Older, at any rate. Not only that, I looked like some young noble's son. My face was lean and fair. My hair needed a bit of a trim, but it was shoulder-length and straight, as was the current fashion. The only thing missing was a noble's clothes. And that gave me an idea. Still naked, I wrapped myself in a towel and left by the back door. I took my purse, 
but kept it out of sight. It was a little before noon, and people were everywhere. Needless to say, quite a few eyes were turning in my direction. I ignored them and set a brisk pace, not trying to hide. I composed my features into an impassive, angry mask without a trace of embarrassment. I stopped by a father and son loading burlap into a cart. The son was about four years older than me, and head and, and, head and shoulders taller. Boy, I snapped, where can I buy some clothes around here? I looked pointedly at his shirt. Decent clothes, I amended. He looked at me, his expression somewhere between confusion and anger. His father hurriedly took off his hat and stepped into in front of his son. Your lordship might try Bentley's. It's plain stuff, but it's only a street or two away. I darkened my expression. Is it the only place about? He gaped. Well, it could... There's one... I waved him impatiently into silence. Where is it? Simply point, since your wits have left you. He pointed, and I strode off. As I walked, I remembered one of the young page parts I used to play in the troupe. The page's name was Dunsty, an insufferably petulant little boy with an important father. He was perfect. I gave my head an imperious tilt, set my shoulders a little differently, and made a couple of mental adjustments. I threw the door open and stormed in. There was a man in leather in a leather apron, who I can only assume was Bentley. He was fortyish, thin, and balding. He jumped at the sound of his door banging banging against the wall. He turned to look at me, an expression in his in, in <laughs> sorry, his expression incredulous. Fetch me a row, Blackwood. I'm sick of being gawked at by you and every other Mueller that decided to go marketing today. I slouched into a chair and sulked. When he didn't move, I glared at him. Did I stutter? Are my needs, perhaps, inobvious? I tugged at the edge of my towel to demonstrate. He stood there, gaping. I lowered my voice menacingly. If you don't bring me something to wear, I stood up and shouted, I'll tear this place apart. I'll ask my father for your stones as a midwinter gift. I'll have his dogs mount your dead corpse. Do you have any idea who I am? Bentley scurried away, and I threw myself back into the chair. A customer I hadn't noticed until now made a hurried exit, stopping brief briefly to curtsy before <laughs> curtsy to me before she left. I fought back the urge to laugh. After that, it was surprisingly easy. I kept him running about for half an hour, bringing me one piece of clothing or another. I mocked the material, the cut, the, and workmanship of everything he brought out. In short, I was the perfect little brat. In truth, I couldn't have been more pleased. The clothing was plain but well made. Indeed, compared to what I had been wearing an hour before, a clean burlap sack would have been a great step up. If you haven't spent much time in court or in large cities, you won't understand why this was so easy for me to accomplish. Let me explain. Noble's sons are one of nature's great destructive forces, like floods or tornadoes. When you're struck with one of these catastrophes, the only thing an average man can do is grit his teeth and try to minimize the damage. Bentley knew this. He marked the shirt and pants and helped me out of them. I got back into the robe he had given me, and he began sewing like a devil, like the devil was breathing down his neck. I flounced back into the chair. You might as well ask. I can tell you're dying of curiosity. He looked up briefly in, uh, from his stitching. Sir? The circumstances surrounding my current state of undress. Ah, yes, he tied off the thread, uh, the thread and began on the pants. I will admit to a slight curiosity. No more than proper. I I'm not one to pry into anyone's business. Ah, I nodded, pretending disappointment. A laudable attitude. 
There followed a long moment. The only sound was that of the thread being drawn through the cloth. I fidgeted. Finally, I continued as if he had asked me. A whore stole my clothes. Really, sir? Yes, she tried to get me to trade them for my purse, the bitch. Bentley looked up briefly, genuine curiosity on his face. Wasn't your purse with your clothes, sir? I looked shocked. Certainly not. A gentleman's hand is never far away from his purse, so my father says. I waved my purse at him to make my point. I noticed him trying to suppress a laugh, and it made me feel a little better. I'd made the man miserable for almost an hour. The least I could give him was a story to tell his friends. She told me if I wanted to keep my dignity, then I'd give her my purse and walk home wearing my clothes. I shook my head scornfully. Wanton, I said to her, a gentleman's dignity isn't in his clothes. If I handed over my purse simply to save myself an embarrassment, then I would be handing over my dignity. I looked thoughtfully for a second. Uh, oh, sorry, I looked thoughtful for a second, then spoke softly as if thinking aloud. It only follows that a gentleman's dignity is in his purse, then. I looked at the purse in my hands and gave a long pause. I think I heard my father say something of the sort the other day. Bentley gave a laugh as he turned... Uh, that he turned into a cough, then stood up and shook out the shirt and pants. There you go, sir. Fit you like a glove now. A hint of smile played around his lips as he handed them to me. I slid out of the robe and pulled on the pants. They'll get me home, I suppose. How much for your trouble, Bentley? I, he thought for a second. One and two. He, I began to lace up my shirt and said nothing. Sorry, sir, he said quickly. Forgot who I was dealing with. One even would do nicely. Taking out my purse, I put one silver talent into his hand and looked him in the eye. I will be needing some change. His mouth made a thin line, but he nodded and handed me back two jots. I tucked the coins away and tied my purse firmly underneath my shirt, then gave, gave him a meaningful look and patted it. I saw, a, I saw the smile tug at his lips again. Goodbye, sir. I picked up my towel, left the store, and started my altogether less conspicuous walk back to the inn where I had found breakfast and a bath. What can I get for you, young sir? The innkeeper asked as I approached the bar. He smiled and wiped his hands on his apron. A stack of dirty dishes and a rag. He squinted at me, then smiled and laughed. I'd thought you'd run off naked through the streets. Not quite naked. I laid his towel on the bar. There was more dirt than boy before, and I would have bet a solid mark your hair was black. You really don't look the same. He marveled mutely for a second. Would you like your old clothes? I shook my head. Throw them away. Actually, burn them. And make sure no one accidentally breathes the smoke. He laughed again. I did have some other items, though, I reminded him. He nodded and tapped the side of his nose. Right enough, just a second. He turned and disappeared through a doorway behind the bar. I let my attention wander around the room. It seemed different now that I wasn't attracting hostile stares. The field stone fireplace was the bla uh, with the black kettle simmering, the slightly sour smells of varnished wood and spilled beer, the low rumble of conversation. I've always had a fondness for taverns. It comes from growing up on the road, I think. A tavern is a safe place, a refuge of sorts. I felt very comfortable just then, and it occurred to me that it wouldn't be a bad life owning a place like this. Ah, 
hence the Waystone Inn that Kvothe now owns. Here you go, then. The innkeeper laid down three pens, a jar of ink, and my receipt from the bookstore. These gave me almost as much of a puzzle as why you had run off without your clothes. I'm going to the university, I explained. He raised an eyebrow. A little young, aren't you? I felt a nervous chill at his words, but shrugged it off. They take all kinds. He nodded politely, as if that explained why I had shown up barefoot and reeking of back alleys. After, ex after waiting for a while to see if I'd elaborate, the barman poured himself a drink. No offense, but you don't exactly look to be the sort who would want to be washing dishes anymore. I opened my mouth to protest. An iron penny for an hour's work was a bargain I was hesitant to pass up. Two pennies was the same as a loaf of bread. I couldn't count all the times that I had been hungry in the last year. Then I saw my hands resting on the bar. They were pink and clean. I almost didn't recognize them for my own. I realized then that I didn't want to do the dishes. I had more important things to do. I stood back from the bar and got a penny from my purse. Where's the best place to find a caravan leaving for the north? I asked. Drover's lot up hillside, quarter mile past the mill on Green Street. I felt my stomach flutter nervously at the mention of hillside. I ignored it as best as I could and nodded. You have a lovely inn here. I'd count myself lucky to have one as nice when I've grown up. I handed him the penny. He broke into a huge smile and handed back the penny. With such nice compliments, you come back any time. Coppers, cobblers, and crowds. Oh, well, uh, that'll be the next chapter. <sighs> Look at the time. I guess we gotta call it a night. Well, looks like things are turning around for young Kvothe. Fifteen and finally on his way to university. Gee golly, bit old going to university at the ripe old age of fifteen. <laughs> well, he is rather bright, isn't he? And things worked differently. University was a place where you would go after you already knew the basics of the world. There probably weren't many academies that you would go to prior to attending the university. Besides, with all his tutelage under Ben, he's probably better educated than most that come out of the school anyway. All right, well... <sighs> Sometimes, a little bit of lying can get you the help you need, if you know how to do it right. But a little bit of the truth can go a long way, too. And remember, you can change your circumstances, it's just difficult. Have a good night.